Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In a talk recorded on November 7th, LA Opera's Richard Seaver music director, James Conlon, introduces us to an unjustly neglected 1780 chamber opera by Joseph Bologna, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, a pioneering black composer who was a contemporary of Mozart. LA Opera's filmed production of The Anonymous Lover will be available to watch from Saturday, November 14th at 5 p.m. through November 29th at 11.59 Pacific Standard Time. Free tickets are available on LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org. Good morning to all of you and welcome to this symposium discussion of the opera La Mont Anonyme by Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges. So let me tell you the story of how this all came to be. Necessity being the mother of invention, we have tried during the COVID crisis to find a way to stream an opera to our audiences and in fact, to everybody. At the same time, as you may know, we have a wonderful program of young artists, all of whom had all been set here to spend the year studying and performing here with Los Angeles Opera. Now we've canceled everything on stage as it has everybody else in the world, but we really uh, not just have a responsibility toward our young artists who have devoted this year to us, but we also of course love and enjoy them. So uh, we were looking for a project that we to combine these two things to put, do the streaming together with our young artists. And we were going through all sorts of repertory mostly classic and Baroque, given the many restrictions of COVID, the orchestra can only be so large, it can't be in the same room as the singers. And we were going through Mozart and Handel and various things. And then suddenly with the emergence of the, once again, of the awareness of how much we all have to do to redress the issues of racial inequality in our society and to review history, the idea came forward to do this classical opera by a black composer. Now, there's a fascinating story behind him and it, but that's how it came to be. And I'm very, very glad that this has all materialized because it has acquainted me with two things. Once again, how much wonderful music there is that we simply don't know, don't listen to, and don't perform. And second, it made me acquainted with this very, very interesting and wonderful composer. So let me tell you a little bit of his story. And let's start with the fact that he had a fascinating life, however, not terribly well documented in many cases. Now, one sees how much we don't actually know. There's a lot of information. Sometimes it contradicts itself. And in fact, there's not total agreement about what his name is and how we should address him and what we should call him. So let me give you that again. Agreement. His first name was Joseph. Second name, not an agreement was either Boulogne or Bologna. Now, he was the son of a wealthy French 
aristocratic plantation owner. And he was born in Guadalupe, which, of course, was and is a part of the now the French Republic. At the time, it was the Kingdom of France. His mother was a slave woman who probably was in the employ of Father Bologna's wife. And we only know her as Nanon, as the only reference to her name, but she was the mother. He was born on Christmas Day, 1745. Now, his father seemed to be referred to as Boulogne or Bologna. Now, later on, he was given a title because of his accomplishments, which we'll go into later, of Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And there again, uh, we don't know if he should be referred to, as he was referred to in many of the documents about his life, as Saint-Georges or Chevalier de Saint-Georges, and others refer to him as Joseph Polonia. So the mystery starts right there. And by the way, there's a discussion and an argument and no proof. Do you spell Saint-Georges with an S the way the French do or without? So right away, his name is, if not mysterious, at least ambiguous. And, uh, and we don't quite know what to call him. Now, he was so talented that his father took him to Paris in 1753 when he was eight years old. And his mother followed. He was to remain in Paris almost all of his life. He integrated himself into very quickly. Why? Because he was so brilliant, he stood out and made a name for himself by the time he was 13 years old. However, he didn't make a name for himself at first as a musician, but as a prodigious master of fencing. And he studied in the academy of a, of a famous man named uh, La Boissière. And in the course of his time there, he actually defeated a real grandmaster. And so when he defeated that man, and the match was apparently provoked by a racial slur on the part of Picard, about the, by the man's name, Alexander Picard. And that's how he defeated him. And he became well-known at that time as a fencing champion. And the that was an entree into royal society. And he was also, of course, in the course of time to have the attention of all the kings and particularly the queen, Marie Antoinette, the last queen of, of, of France. So he was made into a chevalier um, by, and he joined the what was called the Gendarme de la Garde du Roi, which was an honor, and certainly an honor for a 19-year-old. At some point, all of a sudden, we become aware of the fact that he is an excellent violinist and he will distinguish himself as a violinist. He will join an orchestra. He will eventually become the music director and conductor of orchestras. And he will make his name from there on in as a composer. He was so successful, he was uh, considered at one point to become the music director or the general director of the Paris Opera. That means he would have been one of my predecessors, but he was not due to an intrigue against him. This is during the time of Marie Antoinette, supposedly by several soprano prima donnas who said they did not want to have to take directions from a black man. But it is also uh, hypothesized that it was they were used as a front and the intrigue was from just a personal ambition on the part of somebody who wanted that position. In any case, he didn't take it, but he was to embark on his compositional career. It should be mentioned that he has been called, and I 
only will say this once because I think we should not use this term. And I, I want to say that right out front. He was called by historians and in popular lore, the Black Mozart. Now, first of all, the, he shouldn't be called that because it's, it's offensive. And second of all, because in fact, he was older than Mozart. His tradition is coming out of the French tradition, not the Viennese Austrian tradition. More on that shortly. In any case, he should be referred to by his name, not by that. But why, why did that get said? Because in a certain way, he was like Mozart. He was a child prodigy. And also he had all of the, his music had all the natural grace and charm and at times depth uh, that Mozart's music had. Now, we do know that Mozart and Saint-Georges crossed paths and knew each certainly, of course, they both were aware of each other's music. And it is highly likely that at a certain point they lived under the same roof for maybe as much as six weeks or two months. So did he come into contact with Mozart? Yes. And we also know he came into contact with Haydn and more on that as we go on. So his life starts in Guadalupe in 1745, transfers to France in 1753. Now remember that Mozart is born in 1756 and Mozart will come to France three times in all, 1763, he'll come back in 1766, and then um, a final time in 1778. And it is that time that we think that he met Saint-Georges. Now, Saint-Georges wrote actually six operas. We are going to perform the only one that is extant. That the others existed, we know, but there's no trace of the scores. And unless they show up miraculously at this point in history, we will never know them. The first one was called Ernestine, and there'll be more on that shortly. And it was premiered at the Comédie Italienne. That's 1777. A second one, La Partie de Chasse, 1778, lost. The third one is L'Amant Anonyme, The Anonymous Lover. And that's, of course, what you're going to hear. 1780, 1787, you see there's quite a gap there. Uh, La Fille Garçon, lost, 1788. Uh, Aline et Dupré, children's opera, lost. Another attempt, at least, Guillaume Touqueur, 1780, premiered in Lille, gone, missing. And a perhaps pastiche opera or something that maybe wasn't completely attributable to Saint-Georges called, of all things, Le Droit de Seigneur. Le Droit de Seigneur, of course, the right of the Lord is the subject of Beaumarchais, The Marriage of Figaro, and a work by uh, Voltaire. But of course, Mozart's Marriage of Figaro deals with that social phenomenon. It is interesting that because of, by that point, Beaumarchais' play was known, and so this may have been in reference to that play. Now, uh, he also wrote, and this, this is what does it that is available okay just read this read this off uh 118 songs with keyboard 12 arias and duos with orchestra at least 10 violin concerti uh four sonatas for various instruments several sets of string quartets maybe as many as 12 two symphonies maybe more and 10 sinfonia concertanti now this is important 
The Sinfonia Concertante is a form of concerto, but instead of being for a soloist, it is for two soloists, if that isn't a contradiction in terms. Now, we mostly know this in modern life because of Mozart's great and magnificent Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola. But it seems to be the preferred form for Saint-Georges, and he wrote nearly a dozen of them. And it should be mentioned that they were almost all written before Mozart wrote his. Now, is it because he was familiar with Saint-Georges and his uh, examples of Sinfonia Concertante? We don't actually know that, but we do know that we, he wrote it after he left Paris for the third time. And that is, of course, after the time that he hypothetically <clears throat> met and was acquainted with Saint-Georges. So in a certain way, maybe, maybe Mozart owes some of that idea and some of that, that inspiration to Saint-Georges. Mozart, an aspect of his genius is as, as he started traveling as a child, he absorbed music everywhere he went and he absorbed from the Italians, he absorbed from the Germans, he absorbed even in Paris. And he may have absorbed that particular idea from Saint-Georges himself. Now, later on, when he is a music director and conductor of the, of the orchestra, which was called La Loge Olympique, it was actually a Masonic lodge. He, like Mozart, like Haydn, was a Freemason before the revolution. In that context, he was responsible for negotiating the commission to Joseph Haydn to write six symphonies for that orchestra. Uh, it's not documented, at least I don't know about it, if he actually went to Esterhazy and if he, if he met Haydn. But in any case, uh, they had a rich patron, but it was Saint-Georges' job to negotiate for the terms and the commission with Haydn himself. And the result, the six famous Paris symphonies of Haydn. And that those symphonies were premiered in Paris with Saint-Georges leading the orchestra. Not only that, he prepared the first edition of these. And so his life did go directly, come into contact with both Mozart and, and Haydn. The, those symphonies, which are you know, in symphonies number 82 through 87, some of them have names in French, Lourdes, La Poule, In Nomini Domini. And the fourth one was La Reine, and that was a favorite of Marie Antoinette, and therefore it was called that. In fact, that perhaps an apocryphal story that she actually had that score with her in prison before her execution. So now that uh, I give you that little bit of an idea of that, what happened to Saint-Georges eventually is that with the revolution, he, of course, had been associated with the aristocracy, well, not just the aristocracy, but also the royalty. So he did fall into disfavor. He was accused of certain crimes, highly questionable whether or not those accusations were legitimate, but he did spend 18 months in jail during the reign of terror. Fortunately, he survived, and soon after Robespierre's execution, the many of the prisoners who had been held held were freed, and he was freed among them. By, by now, we're, you know, we're up to 1793. He was to live to 1799, the date of his, of his 
passing June the 9th, 1799. Why does that interest me? Just because I love Beaumarchais so much. And if you are interested in the Figaro operas in Beaumarchais, uh, I have made, I think, seven podcasts, which follows the life of Beaumarchais. Fascinating man. In the same way that Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges was a fascinating man, because they were both Renaissance individuals. They were both persons who could do many other things than just, well, in Beaumarchais' case, not just writing, but in Saint-Georges' case, not just playing violin and conducting and composing, but as I mentioned, fencing, but he was also a great sportsman and was um, was so accomplished in so many fields that he comes under that same category as Beaumarchais, homo universalis. Beaumarchais died on May the 18th, 1799, which means they died within three weeks of each other, not seeing the beginning of the next century. We don't know a lot about the personal life of Saint-Georges. There is a lot of apocryphal stories. And part of the reason for the confusion about a lot of the facts of his life is that there was a romantic novel written in the 19th century, which took a lot of freedoms and filled in a lot of blanks. And so the image of Saint-Georges was partially, if not predominantly, informed by that novel. However, a lot of it was not true or was exaggerations of truths. And that was to be followed more recently in the last few decades by a film in French on his life, again, a romanticized film. So when it comes to the question of his personal life, we know very little about it. However, we do know that he was a handsome man, apparently extremely graceful, extremely charming, most Contemporary accounts speak also of his great generosity. And along with his very, very quick wit and abilities at sports, he was actually a very gentle friend. So he had great appeal to the women he came into contact with who were mainly of the aristocratic class. Now, this is an important point to remember because he was never openly able to acknowledge any relationship with any of these women because of the prejudice against such relationships in French society. And so we really don't know much about him. He does not, he does, he, there, he, he never wrote about it. He never, if he told people it was on a personal level and nobody else seems to know or seems to have any witness to that. There were theories, rumors, perhaps certain Madame de Montesson, who was the wife of the Duke of, Duke of Orléans, who was his great big patroness, but that's only conjecture. It's even gone as far to conjecture that Marie Antoinette was also romantically involved with him. But there again, she was accused of many things at the time of her trial unjustly including incest. So we can't believe anything really about Marie Antoinette. So we're just going to say is that we know and assume that he had great appeal to women and probably, of course, had a certain number of love affairs in the course of his life. We don't know really with whom. Uh, there is There are stories that he did have a great love, which for whatever reason he lost, and there was a child lost along with it. But again, 
nothing is substantiated. And that's going to be important, maybe, when we talk about the anonymous lover, which I think it's time to do right now. So if I move on to tell you about the opera, it is a classic, classical opera, classical French theater. And what do I mean by that? It, it's a comedy. And it has many of the characteristics that one would expect to find in any dramatic literature or any of the operas of the time. The plot is rather simple, if not thin, and it's really quite easy to understand. Uh, it involves a noble woman, a young, beautiful woman, a young, beautiful widow, uh, whose name is Leontine. Leontines has been courted by an anonymous lover who has never revealed his identity, but uh, continues to send letters, flowers, messages of one sort or the other, all indicating his great devotion to her. In fact, he's in love with her, but he does not reveal his identity. Now, the plot's going to revolve around the fact that in fact, she knows the man and does not know that he is the author of all of those letters. And most of the opera is going to consist of Leontine trying to decide, should she find this man and should she honor his offers? Now, meanwhile, there are people who do know and they try to bring it about that these two will meet. The most important of those is, uh, well, first of all, the in the original play is by Stéphanie Felicité de Jean Lys, who was a relative, or the, the wife of the aforementioned Duke of Orleans. The story was converted into the libretto. The name of the lover who sends, the, uh, sends all of the letters in the original play was the Viscount or the Count of Clémengis. However, the name was changed in the opera because in the opera Ernestine, which I've mentioned, the leading male character's name was Clémengis. So he had to change it and he calls him now Vautour. So Vautour and Leontine know each other, but Leontine does not know that Vautour is actually the anonymous lover. The other characters we meet, as in most of these classic comedies, there is a peasant couple, uh, Jeannette and Colin, very similar for instance, to Zerlina and Mazzetto, so that we would have it at the end of the opera, in fact, a double wedding, and there's a double wedding, the aristocrats and the serving class, just as we often have at the end of comedies from the time. The other major character is the scholar and who is a part of uh, Leontine's household. His name is Ophémont. And he, of course, is that central figure who knows both sides and gently manipulates the situation. So there is a fairly simple, straightforward plot. Now, St. George's music is excellent and beautiful. The librettos, the stories are of varying value and sometimes not very much at all. And because the audiences, which were largely aristocratic, but uh, you know, already including uh, a slightly broader audience to the bourgeoisie, uh, were more interested in the text of 
whatever they saw in the theater and the appearance, that is to say the spectacle. And so if a libretto was weak, if the story was weak, the opera was likely to fail. And that is most assuredly what happened with Anastine, because as I will show you shortly, there is an extraordinary example of the one aria that has survived. Leontine has a, a confidant and friend. Her name is Dorothée. In the original, she is a only speaking role, but she will sing in our production, and I'll explain why shortly. Now, I've already mentioned Mozart, and I've already mentioned the Sinfonia Concertante of Mozart. Let me play two very short excerpts. The first one from a violin concerto of Saint-Georges, and then a very short excerpt from the Sinfonia Concertante of Mozart, which was written, of course, subsequently, and that you will see how they very much resemble each other. Now, that is the violin concerto in a major last movement of Saint-Georges. Now, listen to a parallel passage at the end of the Sinfonia Concertante of Mozart for violin and viola, and the resemblance is unmistakable. Now we're going to pass on to opera. The predominating aesthetic of opera was being deeply influenced by the presence of the Austrian composer Christoph Willibrand Gluck, who had been brought into French society from the very top by the Queen, and who introduced a seriousness into the operatic form that had up until that point, not been present. Gluck, of course, is known for his publication of his famous reforms, theoretics that were quoted over and over again in the 19th century by Berlioz and Wagner, and but are still read today and are still taken very seriously. Now, most of it was actually articulated by his librettist, Caleb Bigi, but that's not important. The importance is the music of Gluck. And at the very time that Saint-Georges was writing the Amont Anonyme, Gluck had a great success with his opera, Iphigenie en Tauride. And let's listen to a excerpt of that so that you get an idea of what was in the air and that he was not going to associate himself with old music, but he was going to be on the, so to speak, the cutting edge of what was going on in France. Here is the excerpt from Iphigenie en Tauride.
Now let's listen to the introduction to the one aria, the only music that has survived from his opera Ernestine. Now, why do I think this is so special? When I heard this on the internet, I was so astonished by the power of this aria and how far reaching into the future I felt it was. This is something that can stand on its own in concert work. I thought the aria was so extraordinary that I uh, took the liberty of bringing it into the our opera, the, the Anonymous Lover, and we very easily found a traumatic uh, justification and we handed this to the character of Dorothee, who uh, didn't have anything to sing. So uh, it's a virtuoso piece. And I want you to hear the beginning, and I want you to particularly draw your attention to the very deep expression and power, uh, the emotional power of this music. So listen now to the opening recitative of the aria from Ernestine, which we will perform. Now, let's take a look into the future, into Berlioz, because for me, and may just be me, I hear, I hear a suggestion of that, what's going to come, but quite far down the road, 40 years down the road. Here is an excerpt from The Death of Cleopatra, La Mode of Cleopatra, uh, by Berlioz, and I want to just show the lineage of Gluck, Saint-Georges, Berlioz in this. Oh, 
And now let's leave the end of the art. It's in um, three parts, actually. Well, introduction and recitative, which you heard at the beginning. Then there is a so-called A section, which is a faster tempo. Then there is a minuet in the middle, and then that faster tempo returns. So it's a basic ABA form preceded by recitative, which, of course, is a very classic form. Let's hear now the return of the A form, which brings the aria to an end. Powerful music. Now, just seeking out some excerpts or some very short anecdotes, almost more than anything else, to tell you that, interestingly enough, uh, Saint-Georges came to the attention of some very famous Americans who were in Paris in the late 1770s. Here's a letter, 1779, written by John Adams, of course, one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence and, of course, a future president second president of the United States, May of 1779, together with Benjamin Franklin uh, and Arthur Lee. These are three men who are representing American interests in France. John Adams uh, made, wrote this in his, in his journal on May 17th of 1779. We were given an account of Saint-Georges at Paris, a mulatto man, son of a former governor of Guadeloupe by a Negro woman. He has a sister married to a farmer general. He is the most accomplished man in Europe in riding, shooting, fencing, dancing, music. He will hit a button on the coast, coat or waistcoat of the masters at fencing. He will hit a crown piece in the air with a pistol ball. Interesting that that came to the attention of John Adams. Now, I return to the happy or tragic life of Saint-Georges, and is it reflected in his works? Well, this is, of course, uh, always uh, an issue. Do we read the composer's life into his compositions, or do they have a existence of their own? Now, I don't have a definitive answer to that, um, but I, I do believe very much that we should always be dealing with the work as it is. In other words, that's that is the universe. But it is interesting to note that some persons familiar with this opera see a reflection perhaps of one of the more painful aspects of Saint-Georges' existence. Imagine that we see this opera where the protagonist, male protagonist, secretly loves somebody and holds those feelings to himself inexplicably for over a year or two, because he's afraid of rejection, uh, which there's no visible reason why he should be afraid of that rejection. He's a uh, young, good-looking, aristocratic. There's no reason that Leontine, the protagonist woman, should reject him. And yet he's so afraid of it. 
one wonders if the anonymity or the identification with an anonymous lover might have been a strong one for Saint-Georges because he would, of course, unfortunately, due to the racial prejudice, not just prejudice, but the unlawfulness of a marriage of a black man or black woman to a uh, any member of the aristocracy, he would have been forced to keep his uh, feelings very private. And he may very well have loved and mourned some of those loves in the course of his life. And it is striking to me um, how much extraordinary music is written in the minor key, even in this short opera. The new aesthetic, and I, I quote a few things from Barnat's book, which is makes excellent reading, particularly the chapter on the anonymous lover, is um, the discarding of all the courtly pomp and circumstances and bringing into it a bourgeois sensibility. This, of course, will be the future in the 19th century. Saint-Georges' life spanned the end of the aristocracy. He was, as Beaumarchais was, associated with that aristocracy um, and to some degree had to reinvent himself after the revolution. But that was not so hard for Saint-Georges because he was um, somebody who openly espoused the new republic and in cases where we know of his uh, political feelings, obviously, uh, was critical and vocally critical of slavery, which he knew, of course, in Guadeloupe. But this, the idea, of course, it's a rom it's a romantic idea. It is conjecture that the situation in the anonymous lover, to some degree, reflects the very personal uh, life situation that Saint Georges found himself in. In any case, the, the story is a straightforward classical story, but it has the possibility of a rich psychology in it. And uh, we hope to find that psychology in this, this, this uh, stream performances. We can assume by reading most of the contemporary remarks about the operas of Saint-Georges, you, you will hear that his music you, you one one would see that it's it seems like nobody was really listening to music in those days that they were just talking about the story they were talking about the text they were talking about the spectacle uh, and in the case of Ernestine it was a, it was agreed that the music was excellent uh, but that the play and the performance was not um, at a certain point after his last set of string quartets uh, around 1785 he seemed to stop writing his instrumental output diminished greatly. And one of the theories, although I don't know that anybody can actually justify this, is that his closer contact with Haydn may have awed him to such a degree that he may have been intimidating to him and he chose to stay away from him. In, in any case, uh, we do know of those six to eight weeks that he spent under the same roof of the, of the Count Grimm, who was a friend of Leopold Mozart's, we do know that he did, that, that, that Count Grimm protected both Mozart and Saint-Georges um, at the same time. And that uh, is tantalizing to think of the meeting of those two extraordinary individuals of their time. I'd like to sign off with the aria to which I referred and to which you heard a little bit from Ernestine, because I think it speaks louder than any words 
for why it is important that we continue to look and revive works of composers that have been ignored. In a certain way, it's a little bit of an extension of Recovered Voices, uh, which, as you know, my mission to restore to performances the music that was suppressed and sidelined by the Nazi regime, uh, if not also the composers that, taking into consideration the terrible tragedies of many of the composers. So in a certain way, Saint-Georges may be very similar. Now, it could be that the works after a certain while did not survive him because a lot of it was the fascination with his personal appearance playing, but also because the actual style of composition in which he was writing sort of had had its day by the beginning of the 19th century. So it may have disappeared partially for artistic reasons, but I cannot believe that racial prejudice has not played a large role in his continued comparative obscurity. And when you hear this aria, I think you will be convinced that this is an important composer. This is a man who wrote very, very striking and beautiful music and that it should speak for his case. Here's the aria from Ernestine, which you will hear in the course of the anonymous lover because I have taken the liberty of inserting it.
I think the music speaks louder than words for this composer. I hope that this has been uh, helpful to you and I hope that this will whet your appetite for more of the music of Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.